The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, this is Jason Fields, the host of War College. After the Paris attacks last week, we wanted to talk to an expert about how to stop Islamic State. So we reached out to Malcolm Nance. He's a former intelligence operative with decades of experience in the Middle East. Our discussion leads to some unexpected conclusions. If you're a regular listener to War College, you know we do our best with the audio quality. But being a topical show, sometimes we book our guests on short notice. You may hear some background noise at points this week, but I hope you'll agree it's worth it. Now, here's one informed view on how to destroy Islamic State. Hello, and welcome to a special supplementary edition of War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. We're talking today with Malcolm Nance. Nance is an American special operations veteran, counterterrorism expert, author of the book The Terrorists of Iraq, uh, which was just updated uh, in last December, um, and the executive director of the Terror Asymmetrics Project, a nonpartisan think tank that studies extremist groups. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us on short notice. It's my pleasure to be here. So um, after the uh, horrible events in Paris uh, on Friday, uh, where hundreds and hundreds of people were injured and uh, 127 killed, I think there's really one question on a lot of people's minds right now, and that's how does the West defeat Islamic State? To answer that question, you have to break this down into components. First, you have to answer some, some, some fundamentals, and you actually have to face some fundamental truths. Where did the Islamic State come from? What is it? What is it comprised of? How can those, uh, those, those components that comprise the Islamic State be broken down? So even though you hear you know, politicians all the time, uh, making sound bites, saying, "Well, just you know, beat them." How do we beat? Like that journalist asked yesterday, "How do we, how do we defeat these bastards? How do we beat these bastards?" Uh, for people who are actual practitioners or who have actually gone to war, such as myself, uh, this is not the kind of question that you take lightly. It is certainly not the kind of question that you take in uh, in a period of passion, uh, no matter how serious the subject, even as as serious as an attack like 9/11. So, what is the Islamic State? Let me let me go into that first, if you don't mind. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I found, certainly speaking to the media all this week, that there is this, how can I put it, a sort of effect that appears to have um, permeated itself throughout the news media and certainly the the, the journalists that I've talked to, uh, and it's quite surprising, and that effect is there is a case of amnesia going on about just exactly what has been happening in the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa for the last quarter century. ISIS is the fifth generation of Al-Qaeda. Al -Qaeda, let's just put it that way. There have been terrorist attacks of this magnitude in Europe before. There was a subway bombing in uh, Madrid. Uh, in 2004, that killed 191 people, and it was carried out by Al-Qaeda. There were yeah. the subway and bus bombings that were carried out in London in 2005, uh, ended up killing uh, 52 people. Uh, that was carried out by Al-Qaeda. There have been run-and-gun attacks uh, planned uh, and executed uh, by Al-Qaeda and its affiliates all throughout, uh, you know, all throughout the, the world. There have been a few incidents in Europe. 
there were bombings, terrorist double suicide bombings of aircraft over Russia that killed almost 200 passengers that were carried out by Chechen Islamic separatists linked to Al-Qaeda. So, you know, these incidents have happened before. Just earlier this year, we had the Charlie Hebdo attacks. But soon after that, we had the attacks uh, on, Brit on tourists in Susa, Tunisia, killed 38 civilians. Uh, 30 of them were British, who at that time declared war on, on uh, ISIS because they believed that the, uh, the, the, the gunmen were actually part of the Islamic State in Libya. Then the worst part of this amnesia is that every day in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, in Libya, in Nigeria, uh, Iraq, and Syria, there are mass murders of this scale being carried out. Just the day before these attacks, there was a, a bombing. Uh, 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 actually, it was supposed to have been a quadruple suicide bombing turned into a double suicide bombing. They captured the third bomber, the third bomber, and another vessel that was carried out in Beirut. So we don't respond to these attacks in the way uh, that, that we should. And even worse, we tend to completely forget any attack that occurred more than six months in the past. Hmm. Um, France has been subjected to terrorism for a very long time. I mean... As a matter of fact, the French Revolution is, uh, you know, uh, where, yeah. the, where the phrase le terrorisme uh, originated. Um, during the 19th century, the, the anarchists and the gun, you know, the gunpowderers, uh, you know, and the dynamiters, they used to used to do bombings. In right. Paris. In the 1970s, you had uh, Action right. Direct, right? In the 1970s, you had Action, Action Direct would have running gun battles with the French police throughout Paris and other cities and bomb. Uh, relentlessly, same during the Algerian Civil War, uh, War of Independence. So these incidents have happened before. And then people tend to forget about 9-11. So there has been a terrorist group of this magnitude. And ISIS is the next generation of that terrorist group. It's just that they just stated and manifested themselves out of al-Qaeda in Iraq during the Iraq invasion uh, mm -hmm. after 2003. And that's where this all came from. So now that we understand that this group is Al-Qaeda Gen 5, and I don't know if you want me to give you the other four gens, but generations, but uh, Al-Qaeda Generation 5 is Al-Qaeda in Iraq, their central organizational hub that was part of the Iraq insurgency that fought the United States from 2003 to 2011. So this group is certainly not a new group. Now, you don't have to believe me. Just believe the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, just believe every other intelligence agency in the world, because that is the official policy position of the United States government. This group was almost defeated in 2010. Uh, the Sahwa campaign, uh, and I knew, personally knew, uh, the gentleman who designed the Sahwa campaign, uh, a guy by the name Army Captain Travis Petraquin, Arabic linguist who unfortunately was killed in a suicide bombing. The Sahwa campaign damaged al-Qaeda in Iraq, and it literally took away most of the for, former regime loyalist terrorists in Iraq because they were the people who were fighting the United States government in bulk and allowed us to do, use intelligence processes in a newly reinvigorated Iraqi army to really almost crush al-Qaeda by 2010. Then. Uh, with our withdrawal and political mistakes by the government of Iraq uh, managed to make just enough errors to where 
many of those people who were jo had joined us decided to leave and cast their lot in with this Sunni group and create a Sunni terrorist mega group. And at the time, they were called ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq. I mean, mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Then it changed its name as uh, the Mujahideen Shura Council. Then it changed its name to, you know, the Islamic State of Iraq. And then it changed its name to, in 2011, when they sent a brigade of their soldiers, their terrorists, to Syria called the Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, then they took the title Islamic State of Iraq in the Levant, you know, al-Shams, or Syria, as we simply call it today. So it is a continuum. Um, I take issue with a lot of journalists who have written books recently that say, well, this all started, and the originator of this group was Abu Musab Zarqawi. Uh, and that started when he came to to Iraq with, you know, um, Tawheed wal-Jihad, his terrorist group from Jordan. Not true. All of this is is ideologically and operationally uh, groups that have started in 1988 in Peshawar, Pakistan, with Osama bin Laden. And there mm -hmm. is no sunlight between those between any group that has a different name that adheres to this ideology and fights these and fights this jihad. There is no sunlight. The only difference now, and you hear the, the press laud, oh, there's a, the ISIS has left Al-Qaeda. ISIS is worse than Al-Qaeda. No, ISIS is Al-Qaeda, but they just decided that, you know, old men in the, in the, you know, in the Hindu Kush hiding in a cave can't lead a jihad that will carve out a caliphate throughout the entire Middle East. So they accelerated Osama bin Laden's plans, which were always part of the strategy. Bin Laden created many ISIS's everywhere. If you look back, mm -hmm. uh, they had uh, the Al-Qaeda of the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, Jia was a form of this, the, the, the uh, group Islami, uh, Islamic Algerian, right? The armed Islamic yeah. group. Right, it was uh, about, about 200,000 people, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, during the yeah. Civil War, it was about 200,000. Ideologically people. identical, they, you know, and of course, Jia had political factors which which played into it, you know, uh, overthrowing the elections, uh, taking away all of their, you know, popular governmental support. So it was right for, uh, you know, this type of spontaneous, ideologically driven Islamic jihad. But it was all bin Laden's philosophy that he developed in 1988 in Peshawar, Pakistan. And we are seeing literally Osama bin Laden fighting from the grave today. Because you can kill the man, but you can't kill the ideology. I, I think one thing that people, I don't know if it's a misperception, but one thought right now is that there is an actual country of a kind that's been set up inside Syria and Iraq and therefore, it's a firm target that can be hit and then destroyed. One could say that. But what we have is really a pseudo state of captured villages. Let me let me point something out to you. Captured cities and towns as well. But let yeah. me point something out to you. This is not the first time uh, that Al Qaeda tried to seize terrain. In June of 2004, we had the uh, we called it the mini the, the, the mini jihad of 2004 when uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time tried to seize simultaneously six cities in Iraq, including Mosul. Uh, what they did was they just suddenly appeared in all the these towns and they just started fighting everywhere. We called it at the time in Iraq, because I was in Iraq, mini-Tet, okay? Mm -hmm. And because yep. uh, it was a micro-Tet offensive, like in Vietnam War, where they thought they would just, boom, halas, we're here, we're the Mujahideen, you know, we're the Mujahideen, we're Al-Qaeda in Iraq, follow us. And no 
Nobody followed them, and the U.S. Army was standing you know, there and beat them to a pulp. It lasted for 24 hours, and then they disappeared. And at the time, we thought, that was a test. <laughs> okay. This mm -hmm. was a test run for, for mini-jihad, mini-revolution, to see if, uh, it, uh, that if they were actually capable of seizing towns. Uh, and then, of course, they were, they were still embedded in Fallujah at that time until November of that year. So uh, another opportunity that they, they had for that, um, they've repeatedly, over the entire insurgency, uh, seized cities, held them, did, cut deals with the tribes, and then let them go. Ramadi and Fallujah have gone back and forth into the control of AQI and then ISI and now ISIS. Because those, those towns and cities were always former regime loyalist Ba'athists. Right. And once the U.S. invaded, they had nothing. And they fought us with their lead group, the Jaysh al-Mujahideen, right, the Mujahideen army, uh, which was just the Ba'ath Party and the loyalists who lived in Anbar province and, and, uh, and, and all the rest. So they had, a, they had an interest, because this was their home, to consistently fight us until the Sahwa campaign in 2007, 2008. Then they tried to cut the deal with the government and tried to get funds and resources into those provinces. And then Nouri al-Malki just ignored them, dissed them, and they lost all their jobs. And the only person that was hiring at that time was a group called the Islamic State of Iraq. And they threw their lot in with them and created the mega group that was, if you, if you will, a combination of al-Qaeda in Iraq almost being extinguished and every other Iraqi insurgent, Sunnah insurgent, joining them and creating this mega terrorist group called the Islamic State of Iraq, then Syria. Some coalition will will take this territory back from them. But Malcolm, you're saying that that's that doesn't defeat the underlying problem, right? Which is the Not ideology. In in Iraq, it's more than the ideology. All of those provinces which were were seized last uh, last June. They were always in ISIS's pocket because they are the, the Sunnah tribes of Iraq. They are the Sunnah governorates of Iraq. So they have joined. They have now a blood bond with ISIS. They are ISIS now. Okay? All you can do is displace the combat elements of ISIS. But the women, the children, the men who live there, they're all still, you know, they, they are either going to transform into a Sunnah political group that no longer espouses ISIS ideology, or they've bought into it over the last two or three years, three years for the mm -hmm. most part. And they are now ISIS, and they believe the ideology. We won't find that out until we displace them. Mm -hmm. But when we displace them, we're going to be displacing with Shia and Kurds and a very, very few Sunnah uh, forces that create militias. And they're going to be the power players. But you haven't gotten rid of the people, much less the ideology. Okay, so you're saying that the West is going to continue to rely on arming uh, different groups, the Shia militia, the Kurds, and dropping bombs from above, um, regardless of uh, this uh, round of uh, attacks in Paris? Yes, because okay. we, we really, un unless we can displace them on the ground, we really have no option. Um, you know, the president is, I wouldn't even use the word hamstrung. This is where mm -hmm. the president is going to have to be unless he intends to invade Iraq again. Yeah. And I mean, you know, bring in, and I don't mean 10,000 troops. You, you hear these calls for 20,000 troops. 20,000 combatant troops 
has to have a, a three to one footprint. So whatever goes in there, if you say you want to bring in uh, four brigades, for example, and you want to, you know, just reintroduce them out of Taji, out of, you know, uh, al-Assad, and then you want them to go and retake with the Iraqi security forces uh, Fallujah or mm -hmm. Ramadi, Ramadi, which is half taken, um, and then move your way on to Al-Qaim and then up into to Mosul, you're talking essentially going back to 2004 with mm -hmm. the battles that we had in Fallujah, you know. Um, so, and you still have people who will then fade away into the desert. Oh, well, you know, how did we get this? I mean, yeah. you know, we fought 90, we fought a 30,000 man commando force, the Saddam Fedayeen, in the first two weeks of the war. They disappeared on April 14th to a man, all zoop, gone. Hmm. So where did they go? Well, they went home. They went to Fallujah, Ramadi, Al Qaim. And they carried out the post-war insurgency plan that Saddam had had organized before the invasion and became the Jaysh al-Mujahideen, while other people were becoming al-Qaeda in Iraq. So those people have the ability to go home and take off their hat and burn the black flag. So, but again, this is just us speaking about Iraq. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, Syria was, you know, they were al-Qaeda in Iraq's complete and total uh, logistical base of operations in safe haven as run by the Syrian intelligence agencies of Bashar al-Assad. And so, of course, they knew where to go in Syria. They knew that Raqqa was always their logistics hub and that the Syrians would be giving them weapons and equipment to attack the Americans. So when they became the Islamic State of Iraq uh, as, a, as an organizational change, and then the Syrian rebellion knocked down all those structures, well, it's just a question of getting into your Toyota driving from your safe haven in Enbar province, going to uh, places like Deir Zawar and Raqqa, and just taking what you want and carve out your state. And it's a brilliant plan, because technically, if you look at this, if you remove the ideology from this, ISIS has created a Sunnah megastate, which, if they take Damascus, is a, could be a Sunnah nation that could be equal the Kurds to the east, the Shia to the to the to the east to the southeast, the little bit of Shia to the southwest, and be on the doorstep of Israel with all the weapons and equipment of the Assad regime, and that's what ISIS was fighting for—a Sunnah state that even people who don't agree with them in the Sunnah community could understand, both ethnically, tribally, and uh, through a religious dogma. But on top of that, they placed this layer of ideological insanity. Which, which I, I view as cultism. If you put everybody then at Israel's door, which of course is, uh, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I think that's what Bibi Netanyahu has been trying to tell the world for a while, right? No. No? Turkey and Israel are, they are so focused on what they view as their immediate threat. Uh, for Turkey, it's the PKK and mm -hmm. nothing else. If it's got the word Kurd in it, they want to kill it. And then allowing almost tacitly, ISIS to flow back and forth through there and not understand that this is not just a terrorist state. It's a terrorist state that is eventually coming for you. Uh, ISIS is expeditionary in the sense that, you know, they believe ideologically that they are of the marching armies in contemporary with the Prophet Muhammad, that they're the guys with the black flags you know, on the horses and camels. They call them itinerant Islamic knights 
who go around and who are out to spread Islam, just as Islam was spread in the first few centuries. So they view Turkey as just the next major target. But Turkey views the PKK as their number one priority, even though they're actually holding ISIS off. And the suicide bombings that occurred in Istanbul that killed 100 people that the media isn't talking about, that was just a few weeks ago, were the, the strike that everyone in my community had been waiting for. We said ISIS would overplay their hands and the Turkish would suddenly go, wait a minute, you mean they're not good guys? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, they're not Kurds. <laughs> so we, can, we have to kill them too. Israel, on the other hand, is so absolutely death-focused on the Palestinians and keeping the foot on the neck of the Palestinians and raging about Iran that they have no clue uh, and the funny thing is, I've been trying to publish this article for the last two months. I, I just haven't been able to finish it called The Coming ISIS-Israeli War. And they don't understand that ISIS ideologically is a seriously virulent vector. And if it infiltrates Palestine, you've got a new game on your hands. You won't be able to keep those people down. I mean, if the young men of Palestine start actually buying into that cultic belief... Uh, then, you know, they'll just gang rush army checkpoints, you know. They mm -hmm. won't care how many of them get killed. It's an honor to die as quickly as possible so long as you kill somebody else. Israel shouldn't be worrying about rockets. Israel should be worrying about Gaza becoming, you know, the next haven that ISIS doesn't ideologically infect Palestine. Because at that point, Israel will be begging Hamas to assist them in getting rid of this thing. These two nations, they are more concerned about the wolf at the door than the dagger at their throat. Again, how do we defeat this, this ideology, or can we? Is it just something that has to be weathered like a storm? No, no, no. There's, I wrote an entire book about how to defeat the ideology in 2010. <laughs> and um, it's funny because just this last year, people have started discussing what is the ideology of these groups? Um, my book was called An End to Al-Qaeda. You can buy it on Amazon for like three bucks. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, it, it was, it, it was um, something that I had been putting together for almost eight years. I started writing it in Iraq and because when I wrote the, the Terrorist of Iraq, that was operational, strategy, tactics, bombs, guns, and helicopter rides. But on the other side of it, as, you know, as a, as a Middle East intelligence officer, I need to know what's motivating these guys. We had a young Christian woman from Charleroi in Belgium, uh, this should sound familiar, mm -hmm. who joined her husband in Iraq in 2006, I believe. Uh, Muriel Degak was her name. And they did, at that time, a new tactic that we hadn't seen. So I started documenting this tactic and put it in the book called Husband and Wife Suicide Bombings. And uh, they were real married couples. We've got at least three or four incidents where the husband and the wife would do their, you know, honey, I love you video. Uh, and they would show them in their suicide cars and doing the Tawheed one finger. You know, there's one God symbol like ISIS does right now. And then they would do the video team showing them driving off into a police station and blowing up. And she blew herself up in Bakuba. The question at the time for us was, what made her do that? What made her leave Shalwa, all right, come here? Was it just loyalty to her husband? Join al-Qaeda in Iraq in what they called the Sisters Brigade at the time. And 
jump into a car and do a husband and wife, you know, SV bed bombing. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I was stepped back in history again, uh, pre 9-11, I, I ran an organization called the, um, the, uh, the Advanced Terrorism Abduction and Hostage Survival School in Coronado, California. It was part of the Navy SEER school. It was initially designed to be a terrorism survival school uh, for tier one operators who were operating as what we said, at elbow length to terrorists, Al-Qaeda Al terrorists, mm -hmm. in Europe, uh, mainly Europe, uh, and in the Balkans. Uh, got to be a very popular school. This started in 1997. As a matter of fact, our first class day was on the day of the Kenya and Tanzania bombings. bombings. Yeah. So at that school, we look, we did deep dives into motivational uh, ideology. What is it that gets them to do this? And we, we, we knew that there was this, what we call the GJM, the Global Jihad Movement. And we had all of the, we had cassette tapes from Osama bin Laden. We had pamphlets. That's how, that was his, you know, his Facebook. That was his uh, Twitter was to send out cassette tapes and do all these pamphlets. And up in Pakistan, they would print, you know, little books for a dollar and uh, for a dollar for like 10 cents. And, uh, you know, uh, later on, I went to Pakistan uh, in 2001 and I collected a lot of this material. And these guys were everything was religiously, ideologically motivated. Everything. So but ISIS and Al Qaeda's ideology is one step beyond religion. It's it's they 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 actually have corrupted Islam to the point where they require you to believe that there are seven pillars to Islam. We all know there's five pillars, right? right? Right. They add from a book that was written by an Egyptian called uh, Abu Faraj. There's absent obligations. And this has always been sort of like this cult thing that had popped up five times before in Islamic history, where they said, no, t two more obligations every Muslim have, and everyone in our group will adhere to the seven pillars. You will, you will have jihad, all right, the, the lesser struggle of holy war, to change the earth, to bring back the Mahdi, and bring about the apocalypse. Okay? okay, and then you must die in that jihad. Martyrdom, shaheed, is an obligation that everyone who is within our group must meet until in, in this struggle, until such time as the world is is Muslim and uh, the the Mahdi comes back and he fights Jesus in the battle of you know uh, Dajjal to rid the world of the Antichrist, and then everyone goes home happy. So. They believe this. They believed this from the very beginning. And Osama bin Laden was a key adherent to that, which is how he got Ayman al-Zawahiri to come from Egypt uh, and bring his terrorist group uh, over with him to really operationalize this al-Qaeda and its ideology. And this is why 9-11 happened. To not just, you know, you hear academics every once in a while who literally have zero operational intelligence experience. I mean, I've had these people try to kill me. I've survived suicide bombings. I've been in gun battles. I've fought the, the terror war. For, I've been in these missions since 1991. Uh, and I've had people say, no, Al-Qaeda believes in the far enemy, attacking the far enemy, and ISIS believes in attacking the near enemy. And it's like, mm -hmm. there's a goal here. No, they all believe in attacking everybody. Bin Laden truly believed that we were in a clash of civilization 
uh, and that Islam had defeated the Soviet Union in through Afghanistan. He truly believed that in his heart of hearts. And once he did that, and he had that conference in 1988 with, with Abdullah Azam, the guy who met Ronald Reagan, who went around the United States recruiting for the Mujahideen. And he said, these fighters must go home, destabilize their governments, and create many um, Islamic emirates. He called them emirates at the time, principalities. Mm -hmm. And Abdul Azam was like, nope, we're done. Bye. Let's all go home. Abdul Azam blew up a month later, <laughs> going to mosque with him and his sons. And suddenly, Al-Qaeda took all, all of the Afghan Arabs, joined Al-Qaeda, those who didn't go home. And very few didn't go home. Well, and so, that was how well, you created this ideology. Okay, so now that we've created it... You still want to get onto defeating it. I, I, I think this conversation is very important, because I think it, mm -hmm. it addresses the, the ideology, which is something I think a lot of people don't do. Um, I, I think that you're, you know, you, you, operations are important. Um, mm -hmm. They're part of it, but I think fighting this idea that they're perpetuating, this death cult, this perverted Islam, right. as mm -hmm. you as as you call it, is important right. and needs to be addressed. Yeah. I think that's where you win the larger war against this thing. Well, those of us in the community, um, the, the the intelligence community, who are real Arabist, okay, uh, there are, there are a lot of people who who were brought into this who don't understand the Middle East. Um, who don't uh, speak Arabic, uh, who really are just not part of the mindset of understanding your enemy. Mm -hmm. You can't even start thinking about solutions until you know the entire historical basis, the religious basis, the cultural basis, and the tribal basis, and the, inter uh, the human factor dynamics that bring all this together that drives a suicide car bomb through my office door, right. for example, and leaves a guy's, you know, rear torso on my doorstep, uh, which happened. So, or flies, you know, the 19 men fly airplanes into a building and mass murder 3,000 of our citizens. Absolutely. You can shoot them all day. Look, I, 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 I trained as a sniper. Uh, I've deployed. I've, I've used, you know, I've put a lot of Mark 262 uh, ammunition downrange, uh, you know, and uh, I understand that. I can pull a bullet through a man. That's easy. Um, kinetics are always easy. Uh, JDAMs are even cheaper to use. We use them by the bunch every day. But I cannot kill his ideology. I can't kill an idea. Right. And that's, that's the solution. And that's well, what I'm now. I'm going to give you your, your answer. The entire motivating basis of ISIS and Al-Qaeda is their belief that they are fighting this apocalyptic battle which they are going to defeat Western civilization and they are going to spread Islam throughout the world to return the, uh, the Mahdi, their savior, and Jesus, by the way, the prophet Jesus comes back and defeat the Antichrist and create a world that is completely Islamic for God until the end of times. Right? Right. Okay. That, that's their ideology. Everybody agrees to that. Now, now in the last year, suddenly everybody's hearing about it, but they could have read my book five years ago. So... We understand that now. That's where their mindset is. Muslims believe this because it's the exact same thing that's written in the Quran. It's just a question of it's less intensity and it's more the corruption 
of what those words say. I mean, we've had people in the United States and in the Western world who, uh, in the year 2000, I was uh, called uh, to do some analysis on an FBI project, which uh, was tracking Americans who had gone to Israel to commit terrorism uh, to bring about the end of times. And it happens. We have people who are trying to breed purple cows mm -hmm. because the sign of a purple cow or a red cow uh, is, um, is a sign of the end of times. Uh, we had this couple that went to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem and tried to blow it up at the millennium in order to incite a holy war between Israel and Palestine so that Jesus could come back. So these thoughts aren't unheard of in the West. You know, you just... You know, we ascribe them to people who are crazy, right? Right. Apocalyptic thinking doesn't know any. Um... Right. Has yeah. no religious boundaries. So the same goes here. However, ISIS and Al Qaeda, the uh, intelligence community calls it Al Qaedaism. Bin Laden himself called it the victorious denomination ideology. And um, I call it the cult of jihad. Mm -hmm. um, and the cult of jihad is the fifth manifestation of a major cult in Islamic history. The first one was a group called the Khawarij uh, in the, seventh, in the uh, eighth century. Uh, and the Khawarij literally, literally split Islam into two, nine terrorists who survived a battle between uh, uh, Caliph Ali and their leadership, uh, split Islam in two by assassinating Caliph Ali. The Khawarij believed in everything that Al-Qaeda and ISIS believes. They required hijra, which is emigrating, which means leaving your family, going into isolation and only living in communities of their followers, and takfir, which is the right to declare any Muslim a non-Muslim and kill him on the spot. Mass murder of women and children. It was policy amongst the Khawarij because they wanted no bloodlines to survive in order to come after them. And they believed that they were takfir anyway. They were all kafir. So they would kill everyone they encountered that was not of them. As a matter of fact, the Syrians and the, the Saudis uh, derisively refer to ISIS as the Khawarij right now, right? They, they call them this, this first, you know, the first century Islam cult. The second cult was the Karamata, who started out raiding Hajj pilgrimages uh, because they called the Hajj idolatry. And then they got so upset when they got their tribute cut off by um, the Khalifa of Baghdad that they went to Mecca and destroyed the city of Mecca, destroyed the Kaaba, killed everyone who was there on pilgrimage, threw their bodies into the well of Zemzem, and stole the meteorite that was inside the Kaaba. That's the second Islamic cult. The third Islamic cult was the Mahdi's in Sudan. Winston Churchill fought against this group. This guy, Muhammad Ahmed, was so cultish, he changed the Shahada from there's no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger, to there's no God but God, and I am the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. Okay? And then finally, you have the Utaibist of 1979, who thought that uh, one of their members was the Mahdi. And so they seized the Grand Mosque in Mecca in order to bring about the apocalypse and declare this man the Mahdi. And the, and the Saudis, they ended up killing several hundred people. The Saudis had to use nerve gas with quickly anointed, newly minted French pilots as Muslims in order to allow them to fly over the Grand Mosque and drop nerve gas in it. Uh, by the way, that group, the Utaibis from 1979, almost all of their surviving adherents joined Al-Qaeda. And... The brother-in-law of one of the leaders who survived, who wasn't beheaded, beheaded 86 of them, was 
in prison with um, uh, al-Mahdisi, who is believed, who is commonly called the al-Qaeda's uh, Islamic philosopher. And he was the leader who inspired Abu Musab Zarqawi, who led al-Qaeda in Iraq. So al-Qaedaism, or as I call it, the cult of jihad, is the fifth manifestation of a virulently corruptive cult in Islam. And if you look at the way that they attack the Muslims, they are almost anti-Islamic, much less un-Islamic. Okay, so... so you have to... Work. So now, when you listen to people in the West, they say, oh, well, Islam is the problem, all right? You have your Pam Gellers, you have your Rita Katzes and your Ann Coulters, uh, you know, your Anders Bering Brevik, and you, these people believe that Islam is the problem, when in fact Islam is now faced with an existential threat. These groups think that all Muslims, traditional Islam, all of its policies of tolerance, respect, art, culture, and jurisprudence since the, since the time of the Prophet Muhammad, since 632, is, is corrupt, illegal, and un-Islamic. And they intend to wipe it out. And the Islamic State, if you look at it, is just them implementing that policy. And that's what they fully intend for the Muslim world. And they're not shy about saying it. It's in every document that they put out. And technically, they have a join us or die uh, ideological belief. Mm -hmm. And they fully intend to convert the rest of the Muslim world to, their, to, the, to this ideology. Where we have to help is that we have to expose this ideology. Muslims know it, but they're confused about what it is. And, you know, declaring a person a non-Muslim is a very difficult thing in, in Islam. They believe that no matter how misguided you are, you can be brought back uh, to Islam. The Saudis put together a rehabilitation program for members of al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the 2000s, while we were fighting in Iraq, the Saudis had a three-year civil war that killed thousands of Saudi citizens. Al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula went wild around Saudi Arabia. It was like that, that movie, um, The Kingdom. The Kingdom. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Kingdom was not a joke. It just wasn't involving Americans on that level. They were taking Americans hostage. They were executing Filipinos, beheading Indians uh, as polytheists. But the Saudis were engaged in a full-scale civil war. And uh, the Saudis were capturing these guys and trying to rehabilitate them. And what they would do is they would get the imams to convince these people that they had left Islam and that they were acting in shaitaniya, in, 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 in you know, devilishment, so to speak, and that they had become cultists and that their soul would not be clean unless they gave this up and then denounced the rest. It worked a little bit, but of course they also threw like, you know, new Toyota Corolla and a house and a wife and gave them this support structure. And it worked a little bit, and their rehabilitation process is good, but they have a very high recidivism rate because these people so buy into the ideology that they can never let it go. They believe that their souls are married to this belief system and that they must die in order to get themselves up to their rewards. Mm -hmm. So unless we assist the Muslim world in doing this link-breaking, all right, the, the link between ISIS uh, in Islam, and, and literally call this thing out as an Islamic cult and educate people that, you know, there are cults. The Saudis, they're funny. They won't use the word cult, abadi in Arabic. They use the word deviant. 
okay? If you use <laughs> deviant, it means you can be brought back. If you use the word cult, it means you have to kill these guys. You know, you're apostate. Abu Yahya al-Libi, an Al-Qaeda uh, theologian, before we put a bomb on his head, uh, actually gave us the keys to how to, use, how to do this, how to break their organization. He taunted us with it, because Al-Qaeda loves taunting people with things. And he said, there are six ways that you can break us, but you'll never do it. Number one, call us apostates and heretics, right? Number two, mm -hmm. call us out for our personal betrayals of Islam. Number three, play up the atrocities that we do, especially amongst children. You know, when, he, when I read that, I thought, this guy is trying to do a religious confession, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, number four, get political groups to oppose us, Islamic political groups to oppose us. We fear them. And uh, that's number four. Number five, go after uh, individuals within the group who have left the group and who, have, who denounce us. They're definitely afraid of being denounced. And number six, um, uh, ruin our link with Islam. Because if we are seen as un-Islamic, uh, as Ayman al-Zawahiri literally said this in response to Libby's uh, comment, we will be crushed in the shadows. Now, if you look at any other terrorist insurgency throughout the world, uh, the Tupamaros, uh, the FARC in Colombia, uh, you'll see that all of these terrorist groups, rarely are they killed by destroyed by military force. They are almost always destroyed by the loss of the population support, even their microscopic amount of support. Mm -hmm. And so if we go after their ideology virulently, we go after it with all of Islam, and we do this on an international scale, letting the Muslims lead, be the, you know, they have to lead. All we can do is give them, you know, the, a bigger microphone. Then the water sellers of Raqqa will start fearing, you know, am I really going to go to heaven with these guys? Should I be selling them water? Are they cultists? Are they, you know, they, you know, ISIS killed the uh, Yazidis because they believe that Yazidism has a, a, a touch of Zoroastrianism in them, and they believe that they sit, worship Satan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, which is wrong, although I've heard that throughout my entire career in the Middle East. Um, as a matter of fact, Saddam used Yazidi officers as torturers in order to torture his, torment his captives. So um, they did that. That's why they had no qualms about cutting their heads off, mass murdering three or 4,000 of them, and selling and stealing and raping their women. No qualms whatsoever. These people are Satanists. Um, so the same thing can be done to them. You know, we dropped these leaflets with a picture of the Al-Qaeda guy throwing a young kid into a meat grinder. And it was absolutely ridiculous. I laughed. I thought, you know, these guys are collecting these things to, to frame them. And it turns out they were. Yeah. When in fact, we should have the Saudis do our leaflet campaign, where you just drop one word, you know, 20 million leaflets over the city of Raqqa with one word on it, or one phrase, you are now apostates. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming from the Saudis, Arabic signed the ulima, right? The Islamic jurisprudence body. Next week, you are shaitaniya. You are now, you know, engaged with the devil. Don't just say it on Al Jazeera Arabic. You actually have to tell them. You actually have to introduce doubt into this system. And then, of course, every time you drop those leaflets, you do a massive bombing campaign of the city just to make sure that you got your point across. But you have to literally cut their link. Um, 
you have to get them to start thinking, perhaps I'm not engaged with Allah, perhaps I'm engaged with the other guy. I met um, Cory Booker. I went to his office. I was supposed to talk to his chief of staff. They gave me one of his junior staffers to talk about counter-ideology. And as soon as I said this, he said, well, you're talking about us discussing Islam, so this conversation's over. Mm -hmm. I said, so let me get this straight, kid. I'm a multi-decade intelligence veteran for the Middle East telling you, you have to get the Muslims to go after their Islam. And you're telling me, we won't even discuss this amongst ourselves. In other words, ISIS can have Islam. And he said, well, we just won't discuss it. <laughs> I said, okay, done. There's your problem right there. I've often thought that we don't talk about Islam and the ideology behind these people enough. To separate them from it makes, that yeah. makes sense to me. That's, that, that needs to be part of the equation. Right. Well, okay, so thank you very much for giving us uh, so much of your time. Yes, and thank you so much. And uh, helping us to really understand, you know, what's uh, the situation. Thank you very much for listening to this week's show. We ran a little long and it was a bit rough at times. But next time, we'll be back on our regular schedule and talking about drones.